Shabbat Shalom. One of the most pleasant, most brief, and least well-attended services of our just-concluded Yom Kippur observance is the Mariv, the evening service that takes place right after the sound of the blowing of the shofar. The entire community is, of course, invited, but with everyone on their way, understandably, to the breakfast, we satisfy ourselves here at the synagogue with a reasonable but far from robust minion. The davening is quick, Kaddish is recited, those in attendance wish each other a good year, and we all go our separate ways. Short, sweet, and something I look forward to every year. Aside from the question of how a bottle of scotch seems to magically appear at this service every year, embedded in the brief Yom Kippur service is a slightly more substantive theological question. Not once, but twice over the course of the service, we turn to God asking for forgiveness. First in the opening line of Vehurachum, we petition a God who forgives sin and iniquity. And then more directly in the sixth blessing of the silent Amidah, Slachlanu Avinu Ki Chatanu, forgive us our Father, for we have sinned. Which raises the question, of course, of why? Why are we asking for forgiveness. Everyone in the room has just spent the last 25 hours of Yom Kippur asking for forgiveness from God. We've prayed, we've fasted, we've made ourselves vulnerable, we've confessed, and we've been forgiven, sealed, hopefully, into the book of life. It's a sound of the shofar that announces our peak moral condition. Even if I had wanted to sin, in the three minutes between the sound of the shofar and the beginning of Mariv, when would I have found time to do so? Why exactly are we beating our chests again, asking for forgiveness? So as is often the case in these matters, I'm not actually the first person to ask the question. There's no shortage of answers. The standard answer I discovered is the observation that everyone in that service is praying way too quickly. More focus on the bagel and locks to come than the words they're saying, never mind the single malt in their hands. Why are we asking God for forgiveness? Because we should be concentrating more on our prayers at hand. Another answer that comes actually by way of an old Yiddish joke is that in those three minutes, congregants have already found the time to critique the rabbi's sermon and the cantor's voice, an answer that might apply to other synagogues, but not to my congregants. A technical answer, one that we should all take to heart, is that while Yom Kippur atones for the sins between humanity and God, atonement between one person and another only comes by way of interpersonal repentance, which according to some rabbis extends all the way through the end of the festival of Sukkot. The nod to forgiveness in the service is a nod to the fact that we all still have a few more days to apologize one to the other. The answer of the first Ger Rebbe also known as Chidushe Harim, is we ask for forgiveness because although God has accepted our atonement, we ourselves harbor doubt as to whether God has in fact forgiven us. Why are we asking for forgiveness? For our lack of faith 
the sin of doubting God's grace. These are all good answers. And now, if you'll indulge me, I'll share with you mine. I think we ask for forgiveness in the minutes immediately following Yom Kippur because it teaches us that moral development is not a one-day affair. Of course, yes, we've worked hard and Yom Kippur offers a cathartic spiritual reward in that we exit the room differently than how we entered. But the work of moral and spiritual development is never actually complete. Quite the contrary, the sincerity of the promises we've made over Yom Kippur is measured by way of the degree to which we stay committed to them once that shofar is blown and the day has ended. If we're lucky enough to reach our peak selves, we don't tarry there for very long. We stay committed to the climb, like a runner who goes for a jog the day after a marathon, like the patient who remembers to floss the day after seeing their dentist, like the rabbi who has to write a sermon the day after Yom Kippur, or the congregant who has to listen to a sermon two days after Yom Kippur. To pray immediately after Yom Kippur signals that our commitment is not a one and done, a Jewish and slightly more inspiring version, if you will, of the myth of Sisyphus. Not that we are condemned to keep pushing the boulder up the mountain, but rather we see our lives as a sustained climb towards arriving at our aspirational selves. Look, I love Yom Kippur as much as the next guy, or at least the next rabbi. But the truth of the matter is that it's not the fast days in life that matter. It's the slow days. It's not what we do when we're imagining ourselves to be standing in divine judgment, but what we do when we stand in the courtrooms of our own conscience, the small, quiet, and repeated deeds that signal our true selves, and our true values. Nothing about Yom Kippur is meant to be easy, but at least we're clear about the task at hand. But what about the next day, and the following day, and the day after that? Do we stay the course, or have we fallen back to our old ways? Do we stay committed to the vows, oaths, and promises that we've made? Is that not the measure of who we really are? How we behave when nobody is looking? In the context of our relationships, we know this to be the case. Whenever I officiate at a wedding, I'm always struck by the fact that such a, such a small act, an exchange of rings, can mark a transformation of such consequence. Until, of course, you realize that that's exactly what a marriage is the million small gestures shared between partners over the course of a lifetime that constitute a relationship, the decision to love each other to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. The same holds doubly true as parents. The most selfless, most sacred, and most significant moments of parenting to which I have ever borne witness will never be posted on a Facebook page and will never be known by anyone other than the parties involved. The tears, the scratch backs, the doctor visits, the quiet conversations that last well into the night. None of this happens in the spotlight, 
And for that matter, none of it happens overnight. The relationships that matter most to us are nurtured over a lifetime. There are no shortcuts or fast tracks on matters of enduring consequence, not in our personal lives, not in our Jewish lives, not in any aspect of our lives. It's never enough to simply state the ideal, to have the bris, the bar mitzvah, the wedding, and then just assume things will take their course. You have to keep at it. You have to commit it to making those ideals real. Because yes, it is tempting to think otherwise, to look at people's lives as if they're somehow works of art hanging in the museum, as if Van Gogh just woke up one day and hung one of his paintings in the Met, or Michael Jordan just walked on for the Chicago Bulls. But there is no fairy dust in this world. Nothing in this world happens without stamina and sticktitude. As David Bales and Ted Orland point out in their book on the subject, in the age before typewriters, Tolstoy rewrote War and Peace eight times. Kennedy wrote his novel seven times. Nobody just wakes up doing something academically, athletically, spiritually, or morally. I'm reminded of the old story that when Picasso was in a market and an admirer approached asking if Picasso could do a quick sketch on a paper napkin for her, Picasso politely agreed, sketched out a drawing and handed it back, but not before asking for a million francs. The lady was shocked. How can you ask for so much? It only took you five minutes to draw this. No, Picasso replied. It took me 40 years to draw this in five minutes. As sure as I am that there are people in this world born with certain talents that others are not, I'm doubly sure, to paraphrase Bales and Orland, that what separates the greats from the goods and the goods from the never-has-beens is not talent. It's those who continue to stay committed to their craft and those who quit. On more than one occasion, I've drawn on Abraham Jeshua Heschel's teaching that we must build our lives as if it's a work of art. It takes time. It doesn't happen all at once. We sketch and we draft and we sketch and we draft the palimpsest of our lives betraying a lifetime of trial and error. It's an expectation we have of ourselves and it's an allowance that we make for others. We admit to all being works in progress. The commitment to refine and reinvent ourselves is one which we remain true to throughout our lives. Everyone loves a shooting star or a one-hit wonder, but the artists I admire most are those in this world who are able to both reinvent and stay true to themselves one creative decade to the next, who believe that there is always still yet another mountain to climb. The final scene of our Torah reading is one of our most famous. Moses is brought up to the top of the mountain and told that though he may not view the, though he, he may view the land, he will not enter it. A scene for the ages, a scene that gave rise, of course, to Martin Luther King's famed mountaintop speech. There are no shortage of understandings and interpretations. We can choose to focus on Moses' frustrations. We can choose to consider God's compassion in allowing Moses to see the very place which he had spent the last decades seeking to enter. This year, I choose to think about the simple fact that not Moses and not anybody 
stays on the mountaintop for very long. Not on this mountain and not on Mount Sinai some 40 years ago. Peak moments don't last forever. Life goes on. Some of us may enter the promised land, but there are no promises. That is a question whose answer is not in our hands. What is in our hands, what is in our power, is whether we can, as we journey forward from the mountain and into the temporary shelters, the Sukkot of our lives, resolve to maintain the high ideals of those mountaintop moments and let them carry us forward into the next summit that awaits. Shabbat Shalom.